But first we have to uh, go over some content that I didn't get through last time that's from chapter 15 on modulators. Um, we've talked about polarization. Right? We've talked about birefringent elements, devices that can delay one polarization with respect to the other. Um, and we've seen some examples of static devices that use polarization and use birefringence to do some interesting things. Um, can someone remind me what some of the devices we've seen can be created out of these polarizing elements are? The pseudo-isolator to block light from uh, ref retro-reflecting back into a laser. Okay. So our phase retarders do various things. Right? They can convert polarization states. They can rotate polarization. Um, last time we talked about the Faraday effect. What device is made using the Faraday effect? Alexander? Faraday rotator or Faraday isolator? So a Faraday isolator is a Faraday rotator with polarizers around it. And what does it do? Or what function does it provide? So it blocks light from coming back into the source. And how does that differ than a pseudo-isolator, which also blocks light from coming back into the source? What's that? It's independent of polarization change. So a pseudo-isolator is a linear polarizer followed by a quarter wave plate. And so light going through, if it starts off with, well, it will have linear polarization after going through the linear polarizer. And if the quarter wave plate's at 45 degrees, with respect to that, it'll come out with circular polarization. If that light reflects directly off of a mirror or off of any object which scatters light back, that circular polarization changes handedness on reflection from a mirror. And when it goes through, then comes out with the opposite polarization state. And as a result, gets blocked by that linear polarizer. Now, that's the same function that a Faraday isolator provides. Faraday isolator, though, has a Faraday rotator as its polarization rotating device. So what happens is linear polarization comes in, it gets rotated by 45 degrees, and there's another linear polarizer that transmits that light. If there's a mirror that reflects the light back, that light will come back through this linear polarizer. When it goes through the Faraday rotator, we'll rotate the opposite direction and come back with an orthogonal polarization to that which went in, and it will be blocked by this linear polarizer. So if I take each one of these and I put it in a black box, maybe I put it in a red box, how could I tell them apart? So the polarization state of the output light is one way. Um, let's say I have. Okay, yeah, that would work. Another possible way is what if I put something in here? Let me put a linear polarizer. It's axis, say vertical. For the pseudo isolator here, that's going to change the polarization state at the mirror. And when it comes back through, that Linear polarization now, going through this quarter wave plate, is going to become circularly polarized. And half of that will transmit through the linear polarizer. So this acts as an isolator as long as there's nothing that changes the polarization state down here. This one, if I put some object which changes the polarization state, now when it comes back through, because it has to go through this linear polarizer on the way back, regardless of what the polarization state is out here, it's still going to be, in this case, linear at 45 degrees inside the, the isolator. So this truly isolates forward and backwards going light, whereas this only does it if this polarization state is of a particular state. OK? 
Okay, so um, by the way, this is a lot cheaper and easier to make than this. So if you want to buy one of these, you're looking at one to five thousand dollars, and then you can spend two hundred bucks and get the components to build that. Okay, so whether or not you need true isolation or just pseudo isolation may depend on how deep your pockets are. Okay, so those are a couple devices that use static birefringence. Um, but there's also crystals where their birefringence changes as a function of an applied voltage. They're called electro-optic crystals. Um, it's not just crystals. I shouldn't, shouldn't make that generalization. There's also liquids that exhibit a, an electro-optic effect. Um, and to some extent, even some gases. But uh, you can do things like put a capacitor, essentially, around the crystal, around the, the optical material to, to take an, a voltage and introduce an electric field that changes the birefringence of the material inside. And when you do that, you now have a device where you can apply a voltage and change the optical properties of the material inside. So we call these modulators. And modulation means some time-dependent some, some temporal variation in something, a modulation. So this allows you to change the optical properties of this device by applying time-dependent voltage. And what's nice about this is um, you can change those optical properties very fast. Okay, you can change the optical properties of a quarter wave plate. You can turn it. That changes its optical properties. right? But it has inertia. It takes time to do that. It takes It has some, uh, some delay. This, you can apply voltage. There's no mass that needs to move around. So these can be much faster. You can, for example, make an electro-optic shutter. You make a device like this one here that has two cross-polarizers, and you essentially have a voltage-dependent wave plate in between. Then if there's no birefringence in this wave plate, light going through two cross-polarizers is blocked. If you apply enough voltage here to generate a half a wave of retardation, this becomes essentially a half a wave plate, which rotates the polarization by twice the angle between uh, the optical axes of this, or this uh, wave plate and this polarizer. So you could align this to 45 degrees with respect to the input polarization and cause the light to get rotated by 90 degrees and then be passed through these cross polarizers. So you can make a, an optical switch okay, or an optical shutter. So no different than a camera that has a mechanical shutter that opens and closes an iris, except that you can modulate this at tens of gigahertz. So you know, in, uh, in picoseconds, in hundreds of picoseconds, you can turn this on and off, as opposed to maybe milliseconds for an electrical shutter. Okay, so talk about a couple different types of modulators. Um, some are based on what's called the Kerr effect. So it was discovered by John Kerr. And they can cause an isotropic substance to behave like a birefringent crystal in the presence of an electric field. And the birefringence, or the difference in the index of refraction between two polarization states depends on the electric field squared. And isotropic means there's no, there's no preferred orientation. There's no particular orientation to the crystal. It's, and what that means is that when we talk about the difference in the index of refraction, we have to talk about two different polarization directions. But if the material itself is isotropic, it doesn't care about direction. So it must be that the direction is referenced relative to the applied electric field. So in this case, we have these two electrodes. If we apply a voltage, there's an electric field going into the board. And light polarized in that direction will have a different index of refraction than light orthogonal to that direction. Okay, so the alignment of the, of the, uh, the electrodes here determines the, the axes of this effective wave plate. So, the amount of birefringence depends on the applied electric field. It depends on this constant proportionality, and it depends on wavelength. Um, 
this constant of proportionality is a number that essentially you have to uh, empirically find. So you can measure it or you can look it up in tables. It tends to be small, small in the sense that um, if you calculate how much electric field you need to apply to get enough birefringence so that when you go through a crystal of thickness D, you get a half a wave of retardation, you get voltages that are not that uh, suitable for lab laboratory use. Okay, so the optical path length difference, well, the optical path length is N times D when you go through a crystal of thickness D. So if we have some birefringence, the difference in the optical path between the two, between the two polarizations comes from the difference in their indices of refraction. They both travel through a distance D. And if delta N is lambda naught K E squared, and we want the optical path length, for example, to be a half a wave, that's when you could turn this from just a piece of glass to a half a wave plate. That's when you would, if you have these cross polarizers, you could switch this from being off to on. Then we would need the change in the optical path length to be a half a wave. You can see the lambdas are going to cancel out. This would actually be lambda naught over n. And now the electric field, if it's produced by this parallel plate capacitor, the electric field is voltage over the thickness. So let me actually call this L in this dimension D, because that's actually what's in the notes. I didn't realize that. So if the electric field is the applied voltage divided by the thickness of the crystal, this is the amount of voltage it takes to produce a half a wave of retardation. We call that the half wave voltage. And it's a measure of how hard you need to actuate this device to get it to respond in this case, to get it to respond with a half a wavelength of retardation. Okay, so this is saying that the amount of voltage you need to apply to get this thing to operate as a switch depends on the various, the geometry of the device. The closer you can make the electrodes, the greater the electric field will be between them for a given voltage. Right, so that, that's, that's a gain. So you want the electrodes to be close together. So you want D to be small. Typically, the electrodes are just um, metal coatings on the outside of the crystal. So D would be the thickness of the crystal. You want the length to be long so that as there's birefringence, the light as it drifts apart has a, has a chance to, uh, to experience that birefringence for a longer period of time. And then the index of refraction being high also increases the effective path length at the time that the light experiences the birefringence. And then K is that, that uh, care constant. So ideally, you'd want a very thin crystal and very long. The only problem is, and we haven't talked about it uh, too much, but we saw with Gaussian beams, light spreads out due to diffraction. You can strain it here to go between these two electrodes. That's essentially a slit, and the light's going to want to spread out. So as you go further and further away, 
as the light spreads out more and more, you run into a limit in how long you can make the length. So there are geometrical optimizations that constrain your ability to, to achieve a low half-wave voltage. And so for typical, typical uh, materials, the half-wave voltage in optimized geometries is on the order of a kilovolt. And so you can use these devices. You need high voltage amplifiers in your lab to do so. You can't just integrate them into a, uh, into a little you know, circuit that you built off of 15 volt supply. Or at least you can't and have it fully switch the power. The phase shift is going to be linearly dependent on how much voltage you apply. The more voltage you apply, the greater the phase shift. This is how much voltage it takes to get a half wave retardation. If you don't need a half a wave of retardation, but you're willing to just have small modulations to the phase, you might be able to use a laboratory scale voltage and just get um, much smaller you know, milliradian of phase shift. Is the, the N in those equations, is that delta N? No. This is, this is the absolute value. So this It's just the average value. And so typically, delta n is very small. It's, on the or it's usually about a part in 10 to the 5 of the actual value of n, or the, the mean value of n. So it doesn't really matter whether you plug in n1 or n2. They're essentially both the same. So there's another type of uh, electro-optic effect called the Pockels effect. Unlike the Kerr effect, which had a phase shift which was proportional to the electric field squared, this, this one is proportional to the electric field. Um, so it's a linear effect. So the phase shift is directly proportional to the electric field or directly proportional to the applied voltage rather than the voltage squared. Unlike the Kerr effect, this only occurs in materials that, have, that are not isotropic. In fact, they have to have a particular type of geometry to be non-centrosymmetric crystals. And there's a whole, I think there's 21 different point groups of crystals, and a handful of them exhibit this, this effect. Um, the ones that are commonly used in optics are called KDP or lithium niobate. They're just two that have a very high, um, high well, electro-optic coefficient. That's what this term, R63, is, is a term that, we, uh, that we'll use here and call the electro-optic coefficient. It's a constant of proportionality between an applied voltage and, yeah. Anyone explain what the six and three is? <laughs> I know two people who can. Three, if you include me. Yeah, it's like a relation between almost like the different components of the electric field, like yeah. between the EX and GC or yeah. EYAC. But this, 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 the electro-optic coefficient, it's actually an electro-optic tensor, and it's a three by three by three tensor um, that often gets contracted into a three by six tensor. And I can go on talking about tensor contraction for hours, but I won't. In a particular geometry, one element of the tensor, which is the six R63, that element of the tensor, which happens to be the largest, give, produce the largest effect, um, is the one that contributes to this expression for the phase shift. If you want to learn more, uh, Physics 208 is a class on electro-optics. So we go through this in great detail. Um, so what we have is we have a phase shift that's proportional to, so this R63 is basically our constant of proportionality, an applied voltage. Okay, and in here, the geometry is such that the uh, electric field has to be in the direction of propagation. Or at least in the direction of propagation gives us this, uh, this particular constant of proportionality. And so what's interesting here is that if we Take the same diagram. We now put our electrodes 
on the front and back face of our crystal. And you can use tin oxide, for instance, which is a transparent electrode, and coat the crystal and apply a voltage to the front and back face. Then the electric field that gets produced is V over L, the electric field between two parallel plates of a capacitor. The phase shift is proportional to, the constant of proportionality looks like 2 pi n cubed R63. times the electric field. That gives the birefringence. So times the length of the crystal. So this is uh, this is delta n. Now when I plug in this value for the electric field, We get the L's canceling out. And we get a phase shift that's independent of the crystal geometry. So before, there was a uh, particular optimization that needs to be done to maximize the phase shift at a given voltage in a uh, care cell. But in a Pockle cell, there's no such optimization. If you have a longer path length, you have a longer time for the light to interact with the crystal, but you have a weaker electric field producing the birefringence. If you have a shorter path length, then you have just the opposite, and the, the relative effect of the two, two effects cancel out. So this also has a typical half-wave voltage of a few kilovolts. And these can be used in a variety of ways. One is phase modulators. So if you have light, if you have this, if you treat this as a variable wave plate, and here are its axes, say a fast axis and a slow axis, if the light is polarized along one of those axes, and you can change the, ref, uh, the retardation of this wave plate, you change the phase of the light as it goes through. Okay. So that can be useful for a variety of reasons. Put phase modulation sidebands on the light, which you can then later detect. Phase modulation is like frequency modulation. Right? Frequency is just the time derivative of phase. So you modulate the phase, you modulate the frequency. And we know that frequency modulation is useful to transmit information, because that's how we listen to the radio. Okay, so the same thing with electro-optics. You can use them to uh, can communicate over fibers, phase modulating the light, and using the same heterodyne techniques that are used for detecting radio signals. And so this can be your device that takes an electrical signal and imposes it on the light. You can reach speeds of about 30 gigahertz, which tells you about the bandwidth of the signals that you can transmit or generate using one of these uh, electro-optic crystals. If you compare that to you know, putting your hand in front of the light and turning it on and off and sending Morse code, how fast can you do that? You know, it's a hertz or so. OK, so these devices can be very fast. Um, the downside is they require a tremendous amount of voltage, at least on the laboratory scale in order to fully actuate them, to, to scan them through a full half a wave. You can also use them as amplitude modulators. I mentioned that before. If you have cross polarizers, and you use this such that it rotates the polarization of light, so the, the optical axes of this device are at 45 degrees with respect to your polarizer, then when the retardation is zero, it'll have no effect. When it's half a wave, it will rotate the light by 90 degrees. And we can use Jones calculus to see how this can be used then as an amplitude modulator. So we have some input state for the polarization. 
it goes through a horizontal polarizer. So here's the horizontal polarizer. And it only transmits the x component. We then have a crystal that has a voltage-dependent phase shift. So this is just the Jones matrix for a retarder. And that retarder is oriented at 45 degrees with respect to this horizontal axis. So we put a 45 degree rotation and anti-rotation matrix on either side of our, of our rotator. So we take our X polarized light, we rotate that at minus 45 degrees, we go through our, our crystal matrix, our, our uh, wave plate, and then we rotate it back into our coordinate system and go through a, a uh, vertical polarizer. Okay, so if we work this out, all these cosines and sines, these are all equal to 1 over square root of 2. And debating how much math I want to do right now. Do you want to see me work out the matrix, or do you want to see me quote the result? Okay, I'll quote the result. So um, we get an expression that has a phase shift. that has light polarized this should be switched, yeah yeah, so the x input should come out in the y polarization right. the y input gets blocked right away and the x output gets blocked, so there should be no x output that should, that's just written in the wrong, wrong location and there's a sine delta phi over 2 term. That is going to come from this phase shift right here. When I multiply by the rotation matrices, I'm going to get uh, some quantity times, uh, I'm going to get the sum of this, this phase shift and, well, without, without writing out the math, I can't very easily point out where it comes from. Clearly, if phi is equal to 2, I'm sorry, phi is equal to 0, this amplitude is 0, no light is transmitted. If phi is equal to half a wave, half a wave is pi of retardation. Right, sine pi over 2 is 90 degrees, sine 90 degrees is 1, and I just get some phase shift but I get maximum amplitude. I get all the x polarization going through. Gregory? Yes. Okay. Okay. I is equal to e to the i pi over two. Okay. So I can add. A static pi over 2 phase shift so to this phase. Yes. So this is a 90 degree phase shift. This is a phase shift due to the, uh, the crystal. It's a voltage dependent phase shift. Okay, the crystal, after all, is a phase modulator. It's going to change the phase of the light, and that's the term that does that. And because it's between these cross polarizers, it's also changing the amplitude. And that's this term. And so if I look at the intensity of the output, the intensity of the output doesn't care about the phase. It's phase independent. So I just take this quantity, the absolute value squared. So the absolute value of these terms is 1. This quantity squared is just sine squared. And the square root of the input, or the input field squared is proportional to the input intensity. So I get an expression that tells me how much output I have. It's a function of input, and it depends on the voltage-dependent phase shift. Okay, so let me plot that. So here's I out over I in. Here's phi. This is 2 pi and 0. Right, so we said it's 0. The output amplitude is 0. 
At 2 pi, the output amplitude has to be 0 as well, because it's periodic. And we said at pi, which was half a wave, this acts like a half wave plate. It rotates the light 90 degrees, and it all gets transmitted. And the maximum transmission then is 1. Okay, so if we want to use this as a way to um, turn light on and off, we're going to use it in front of a camera as a shutter. We can start with zero volts and turn on a, a voltage. And as soon as we can get that capacitor charged up to the half wave voltage, it will go from off to on. If we want to use it to send information, we don't need to go all the way from off to on. We could, for example, operate somewhere here in the middle and have the intensity go up or down. So by introducing a small phase shift, or a small change in the birefringence, we could detect a small change in the amplitude. Okay, and that's a common way that it's used. Now the problem is, if you look at the output transmission around zero phase shift, it's zero. Right? So there's only a second order dependence. Remember this phase shift is uh, proportional to the voltage. So there's only a second order dependence on the transmission as a function of the applied voltage. If you could somehow bias this device so it was sitting up here, then a small change in the phase would have a linearly dependent change in the transmission. How could you bias it to sit up here? What's that? Yes. This is a quarter wave of retardation. If you want a static quarter wave shift plus some additional change in the voltage, one way is you could just add a voltage, add 500 volts or however much it takes to get to this point, and change the voltage around that point. Or an easier way would be to add a quarter wave plate into this device. Okay, so those are some of the things that can be done with modulators. That's, that's basically how they work, and the, uh, their operation can be understood using Jones calculus. So propagating through all the elements of the modulator, um, and then we can, we can see how they can actuate the amplitude or the phase of the light. Okay, so... Um, See, we talked about crystals can have birefringence. Birefringence can be due to the uh, nature of the alignment of the crystal atoms, or it can be induced by external effects like stress. A piece of plastic that we stretch out introduces birefringence. Um, or it can be due to external effects like an applied electric field or an applied voltage. Um, and in the case of the applied electric field, we can make uh, useful devices like phase modulators and amplitude modulators that allow us to have a time-dependent and a voltage-controlled uh, optic that changes its optical parameters. Okay, any questions? This concludes my discussion of polarization, but not all of ours. Now we have show and tell. There was an extra credit assignment that I posted on the website. Ankit, I've got yours first. All right, well, this is basically uh, seeing light through a holographic diffraction rating. So uh, basically like a thin film, basically that two wave fronts that have been like out of phase that have been put on a thin film, like a photographic film. And as a result, when uh, you, know, you have the white, the light coming from above, basically separates individual wavelengths
Okay. So could you figure out from this picture the pitch of the the, the lines? The lines? Oh. Well, just roughly explain how you could, or you don't have to go through all the math, but. Groups, lines. Okay, so if the grooves got closer together, how would this picture change? So these diffraction patterns would. would spread further apart. Okay. And you had a video. You can play it. Let me go back, sorry. So why is a, why does an LCD use polarized light? Do you know? Well, because when you have unpolarized, because you have a uh, liquid crystal cell in the center, and basically when you apply voltage versus not applying voltage, then uh, by having polarized light, you can control whether light gets transmitted or not. Okay, so it's the same idea as this amplitude modulator. That's what it is. It's an amplitude modulator with a liquid crystal, which can rotate the polarization. It uses a different mechanism than the the phase modulator we described. But you have a sandwich of crossed polarizers, a liquid crystal in the center that when voltage is applied can rotate the polarization and let it transmit or not. Good. Go for it. I thought sunglasses had a specific polarization direction because of the booster's angle, so it doesn't, you know, uh, yeah. it extinguishes a certain thing when it's reflecting. So does this mean the LCD screen actually has the polarization direction of 45 degrees? Looks like it. Yeah. Looks like the output polarization is about 45 degrees. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I just wondered because you said it was horizontal. So you might ask why 45 degrees. Yeah. I don't know why 45 degrees, but my guess is that it's got two polarizers and. Um, the natural rotation of the light from the liquid crystals will cause it to be extinct when the no voltage is applied. When you apply the voltage, it lets it transmit. So, glasses. Maybe they just want to make sure that if you're wearing glasses, you can still see it. You're not going to be usually seeing <laughs> your head. Maybe it's something as simple as a <laughs> that's functional approach, right? The, that's possible. Yeah, I, I don't know why. I, I would encourage anyone who goes into designing LCD displays for devices to think about people who might be wearing polarizing sunglasses, particularly digital cameras. <laughs> because with my camera, I either have to take the landscape portrait or I have to turn my head 90 degrees, one of the two. And so Alexander, this is your picture. 
Yeah. You want to explain it? So, um, I get crucified. Um, and I know these from the lines that are on the back of the cards that there's words around them. So when I zoom, I saw the fraction pattern. And there's obviously no, no slip in front of them. So, um, what I uh, research is that um, this is a point and shoot camera. So, the sensor size is much smaller compared to a 35 millimeter camera, so the sensor size is something like on average 8 by 6 millimeters or 10 by 6, something like that, compared to something like 30 by 20 millimeter sensor size. So the more megapixels you pack into a 8 by 6 millimeter, the smaller each of them is and it's acting like a diffraction gradient. Um, so in this case, I'm not sure it could be the Fresnel uh, diffraction because if the sensor is kind of thin, I don't think it's far enough for the far field. Um, I couldn't get the numbers, so I'm not sure, but it could be a Fresnel diffraction. And there's also some kind of glare I see it, like 45 degrees I see it on the other. Yeah, so what could cause that, that particular line at 45 degrees? It's common across, well, it has a little bit more pronounced in sort of all the picture, all the lights. It's pretty clear there. Could that be the orientation of the pixels or the sensor? The pixels are probably on an XY grid. Um, certainly that's the way they get read out, but um, usually that means there's some hard object that would be at 45 degrees like this. That hard object could be, there's a lot of things that could cause that. It could be the, you know, the wristband hanging in front of the camera would do that. It could be, um, it could be a mount for one of the optics that's not, the optic not being quite centered on the mount getting clipped on the side a little bit. I don't know. Any questions on that picture? Alexander lives in a very cold, cold place. Okay, so something about your second comment struck me is that you can relate that maybe to what you see in a rainbow. So we haven't talked about that at all, but um, rainbows are formed by drops of water that are spherical, right? And so what's going on in this picture when light goes into a drop of water? 
why does it get split up into the different wavelengths? Dispersion. The different wavelengths have different indices of refraction, so it, when they hit it in a non-normal incidence, they get bent different amounts. And the geometry of a spherical drop is such that they can reflect off the back surface and then come back. And because of that dispersion, they get spread out in angle. Right? And you get essentially uh, an angular deviation between the different wavelengths. And that the geometry of that gives you the angular position of the different colors of the rainbow. Has anyone ever noticed that if you walk across like a newly paved asphalt street on a hot or sunny day, you can see a rainbow in the asphalt ring below you? What's that? Uh, I assume it's, it's well, it's got to be particulate, whether it's oil or it probably is. But it's not the, uh, it's not the thin film effect that you see from a sheet of oil. It's, it's particulate. Good. Now, Mark, you ready? Here, I'll, are you going to explain it or are you going to just let the, uh, your previous explanation speak for itself? So what you guys are looking at right now is my LCD computer screen. Tape itself works too. <laughs> Any questions? go back and look at uh, the circular polarizer. So what you guys are looking at right now is my else. Okay, sunglasses, okay. Got that. You've seen that. Uh, filter for my camera. It's a circular polarizer. And what I do is I screw this on to the front of my lens assembly on my camera and it behaves just like a linear polarizer uh, when it's oriented properly. What it is, is it's a linear polarizer in front of a quarter wave plate. No. And uh, light entering a digital camera has to be circular polarized because the 
because the optics inside the camera can change the polarization of light. And when you want to take an image and cut down on reflections, you don't want to have the, op the internal optics change any type of polarization that you want to eliminate. So what I can do is if I put the linear polarizer towards the computer screen, it behaves just as before, just as a regular uh, polarizer. There's extinction in one direction and maximum transmission in another. And if I turn it around so that the quarter wave plate is facing the camera, so facing you guys, there's no such dependence anymore. So the, the orientation of this optic is important to its performance. Okay, so do you see any effect at all when it's, it's turned out? You see a little bit. Yeah, can anyone explain so that? The orientation of this optic is important to its Uh, well, let's draw it. Let's draw what we have. So, okay, uh, prob it's possible, but the yeah, it's there's probably not a reason why it would absorb in one direction, not the other. Um, but let's let's look at first of all our uh, our optic. We said it was a linear polarizer. And then a quarter wave plate. We'll put the quarter wave plate on this side. And how should it be oriented? Okay, 45 degrees. A quarter wave plate. And see the CRT was on, or the, it's not a CRT. What would you see if you had a CRT and you're doing these experiments with the polarizing sunglasses? Nothing. It would just block like 50% of the light. Light from a CRT comes from glowing phosphors, and they're not polarized. Okay, so over here we have our LCD. Now, what do we know about LCDs? They're polarized at about <laughs> they're polarized at about 45 degrees. So let me just. So let me just draw a linear polarizer at 45 degrees here, and then light, some sort of white light source. Okay, so this will represent our LCD. It's just going to be polarized light at 45 degrees. Now, why would the orientation affect things, affect the intensity seen coming out? From going from here to here, why is the intensity going to be slightly angular dependent? Or is it? So as I've drawn it right here, let's trace out the polarization states. The LCD has linear polarization at 45 degrees. What do we get between the quarter wave plate and the linear polarizer? Circular. And then if we have circular polarization followed by linear polarizer, how much of the light gets through? Half of the power gets through, right? And it's going to be whatever polarization state the transmission axis is. Um, okay, so let's say I rotate this device, right, which is equivalent to rotating the LCD. Let me rotate the LCD so that its polarization is vertical. Oh. Sorry. Let me start with it, say, horizontal. Then our explanation makes sense. Okay. But now let me start with it at 45 degrees. This light is polarized at 45 degrees. What is the polarization state of this after the quarter wave plate? the same, right? Because the quarter wave plate doesn't, or the transmission axis, or the optical axis of the quarter wave plate is aligned to the linear polarization. It has no effect. So light at 45 degrees going through a linear polarizer, how much of that power gets through? Half? 
In both cases, half the light is getting through. Is there, are those just two specific cases, or do you think for some angle in between I'd get some other, other value? Okay, so one way to think about it is, let me, uh, let me erase this one that I've drawn in red. Let me consider the case. My input is linearly polarized and is horizontal, and the other one where it's vertical. Those both produce circular polarization, but of opposite handedness. And each of those will transmit half the light through. Um, any arbitrary polarization state can be broken down into equal components of those. So half of the power in each of those components will get through. Now it might be that the electric fields in those two components would be out of phase here and they would cancel. So it's not exactly clear that just because each of those two possible components transmits half of its power through, that the power of an arbitrary polarization component is going to be half as much. So we'll go through with Jones calculus and figure this out. Wait. So then you're so basically what you're saying is you can not just take a linear polarization and break it into two circulars, but you can take a circular polarization and break it into two linear polarizations? Mm -hmm. You can, because circular polarization looks like this. It's two linear polarization states that have a 90 degree phase shift between them. So we said that I represented a 90 degree phase shift. So this is x polarization with a 90 degree phase shift with respect to y polarization. So you could write circular as a sum of two linear polarization states. So let's write out the Jones matrix for this. Um, let's start with linear polarization at some arbitrary angle. That'll be our input. Okay, that's at an angle theta with respect to the horizontal. Then we've got a quarter wave plate at 45 degrees. So a quarter wave plate at 45 degrees. We don't know which axis is a fast axis and which axis is a slow axis. So this is going to look like So this is my quarter wave plate at 45 degrees. This is my quarter wave plate at 0 degrees. Okay, So I'm going to go ahead and just multiply this, this through. So I've written all the sines and cosines as plus or minus 1 over square root of 2. I factored out the 1 over square root of 2 from this and the 1 over square root of 2 from this to give me my factor of 1 half here. And that leaves me with these matrices as my rotation matrices. And then I can write this, the product of this and this is uh, 1 minus 1 I, I. And then I have 1, 1 times 1, I. 1, 1 times minus 1, an I. Minus 1, 1 times 1, I. Minus 1, 1 times minus 1, i. 
So this is my quarter wave plate at 45 degrees right there. Mark? Um, with the Jones matrices, when we're doing the ABCD matrices, 